Noha, the floor is yours. Thank you. Thanks very much, Ivo, for that kind introduction. Um, it's really great to be here. I, I've been on um, the Oxford Transitional Justice Research Network's mailing list for years, and living thousands of miles away, I'm always so disappointed when I see you have all these wonderful speakers and I, I can't come. So um, it's, it's, it's nice to finally be here, but I wish that I wasn't listening to myself speak instead <laughs> of listening to one of your other wonderful speakers. Um, so my, my talk will focus on the pursuit of transitional justice in the context of resurgent authoritarianism and ongoing violent conflict, which is the cheery uh, running theme of, of my book. So over seven years ago now, on the morning of the 3rd of August 2011, um, shocking live images of former Egyptian President Hosni Mubarak in a courtroom cage lit up television screens in Egypt, the Arab region, and beyond. Um, he, along with several other high-level government officials, uh, were being tried for corruption and for the murder of peaceful protesters during the 2011 uprising. Um, when asked to confirm his presence in the courtroom, he responded, Afendim enemogut, or Your Honor, I am present. Um, Mubarak's statement quickly became a popular ringtone for mobile phones in Egypt, as if to assert time and again that the impossible had become reality. So for many Egyptians at the time, uh, Mubarak's incarceration was a powerful symbol of um, the revolution's success in ousting him and in marking a new post-Mubarak era. And about two months before that, um, former Tunisian president Zin al-Abidin bin Ali was tried in absentia also for corruption um, and for the, the killing of peaceful protesters there during the uprising there. Um, and during that same summer, the ICC, of course, had issued arrest warrants for Libyan leader Muammar Gaddafi, his son, Sif al-Islam Gaddafi, and the chief of intelligence, Abdullah Sunusi. And we've since seen a couple more uh, uh, ICC arrest warrants in Libya. And meanwhile, um, former Yemeni president Ali Abdullah Saleh had agreed to uh, step down in, in a deal that guaranteed his immunity from prosecution. So such was the rapid unfolding of decisions regarding, uh, the, uh, regarding the prosecution of political leaders in the Arab region, all within really just a matter of months following the massive anti-government uprisings of 2010 and 2011. But the, the jubilation <clears throat> that the images of Mubarak in the dock triggered quickly subsided. Uh, he went from being um, sentenced to life in prison in June 2012 to being uh, released about ju just over a year and a half ago, and he now resides in his mansion in Cairo with his family. Uh, so some of these leaders and, high, and other high-level government officials have either been released or they remain out of the reach of the courts, um, or they've been killed, or their whereabouts are just about anybody's guess. Now, apart from the generic concerns um, uh, surrounding politicized trials, deeper questions um, about the premise of transition began to emerge. Transitional justice scholarship and practice, I think, has um, predominantly operated on the assumption that uh, transitions constitute a shift from violent authoritarian rule to liberal democratic rule. And of course, as we, as we know, this hasn't exactly been the case in, in the Arab region. So this brings to the fore two important questions that target the heart of transitional justice. What is meant by transition and what is meant by justice? And while the notion of justice has, is often and rightly so questioned, 
in transitional justice and other fields, I think we also need to think more carefully about uh, what we mean by transition. What are these countries transitioning from and what are they transitioning to? How does that shape the transitional justice processes that are undertaken in those societies? I argue it affects them a great deal. Um, is transitional justice always about addressing the past? And if so, which part of the past does it seek to address? What are the objectives of seeking justice for past atrocities and whose objectives are they? So these are some of the central questions that um, uh, my book addresses. So I set out to explore what <coughs> triggered, what drove, and what shaped decisions regarding the prosecution of political leaders, including other high-level government officials, through a comparative case study of Egypt, Libya, Tunisia, and Yemen. Drawing on uh, scholarly work, of course, and findings generated from almost 50 interviews in those four countries, um, I advance four principal arguments. First, the emergence of renewed authoritarianism and ongoing conflict means that the nature of the transitions in the Arab region is non-paradigmatic, or it falls outside of the, the mainstream approach to, to the study and practice of transitional justice. Um, this warrants a rethinking of transitional justice and its pursuit in varied contexts. Secondly, the, the cases demonstrate that both domestic and international actors pursue inconsistent and contradictory positions when it comes to accountability. This is, this is of course, nothing new, but it complicates um, claims uh, that the global accountability norm is gaining ground. And third, uh, the, the limited scope of the investigations and trials that took place underlines the need to develop transitional justice theory. So in other words, scholars and practitioners need to take into account the use and abuse of transitional justice by various actors, especially when it is used to consolidate or renew repressive rule. And fourth, the Arab region cases demonstrate the perils of pursuing prosecutions using weak and politicized judiciaries. So a rethinking of transitional justice needs to take into account the absence of uh, pre-existing or pre-transition democratic structures and what this absence means for criminal justice prospects in diverse transitional contexts. So ultimately, I, I argue that the Arab region presents the strongest challenge yet to the transitional justice paradigm, which presumes, whether explicitly or implicitly, um, that transitions constitute this, this shift from violent uh, authoritarian rule to peaceful, liberal, and democratic rule. So I'll, I'll unpack some of these arguments with, with some examples. Uh, the, the current president of Tunisia, Bejikar de Sipsi, <coughs> Um, Minister of Interior and Minister of Foreign Affairs under both Bourguiba, the, the first um, post-independence president in Tunisia, and uh, under Ben Ali, the successor. Um, Esipsi appointed several Ben Ali regime officials to senior political positions, prompting some to question the praise for Tunisia as the beacon of hope for the Arab Spring. Um, so this emergence of the so-called uh, Ancien Nouveau in Tunisia, or the Old Guards, um, who have morphed into the new post-transition government has had a direct impact on uh, transitional justice in Tunisia. Um, in for, in, for example, in 2014, Tunisia established the Truth Commission, right, the Truth and Dignity <coughs> Commission. Um, and it has since received over 65,000 complaints detailing horrific human rights um, abuses suffered by victims for nearly 60 years. Powerful testimonies were televised by the state broadcaster and triggered really um, a national debate about how to address the painful past. The Asipsi government, however, has been hellbent on preventing the Truth and Dignity Commission from conducting its work. 
Um, it denied it access to governmental archives. It passed the highly controversial reconciliation law, which violates the mandate of the Truth Commission. And earlier this year, it refused to extend the, the commission's mandate for another year to allow, to, to allow it to complete its work. But this decision was, was basically um, reversed by the Ministry of Human Rights. So Tunisia then hasn't been exempt from the counter-revolutionary assault that the region suffers from. Um, most of the 20 or so high-level government officials who were put on trial in Tunisia have been set free. But a closer look at two contrasting cases, um, the Barakat al-Sahel case and Faisal Barakat's case, reveals the extent to which transitional justice is a fluid and contentious process. Uh, I'll begin with the Barakat al-Sahel case. Abdullah Khalel was Minister of Interior in Tunisia from 1991 to 1995. In 2001, while undergoing heart surgery in a Geneva hospital, Abdel Nasser Naït Liman filed a complaint with the prosecutor in Geneva. Naït Liman was tortured in a Ministry of Interior detention cell in Tunisia in 1992, following a violent crackdown by security forces on an alleged coup plot in 1991. So over 240 members of the Tunisian military suspected of ties with the Islamist opposition party in Nahda were detained and tortured by interior ministry officials who claimed that the military was planning a coup to overthrow Ben Ali and his regime. So this case became known as uh, Barakat al-Sahel, named after the town in which the alleged coup plot took place in 1991. But <coughs> Abdullah Khalel fled Switzerland before the police were able to arrest him. Um, now, this case remained dormant until uh, 2011, so 10 years later, when 17 victims of the crackdown, mainly mid-ranking military officers, filed a case against Abdullah Khalel, uh, but also against Ben Ali and 12 other government and security officials for their alleged role in the torture of those detained in Barakat al-Sahel. Uh, so the, the permanent military court of Tunis sentenced Abdullah Khalel and Ben Ali and several others to four years in prison in November 2011. In April 2012, these sentences were reduced by half. And then in 2014, Khalil and his colleagues were freed when an appeals court reduced their sentences again to um, time served. Monsif Marzuki, who was president of Tunisia in 2012, delivered an official state apology to the victims of Barakat al-Sahel. And it's worth mentioning here that Monsif Marzuki was um, an outspoken human rights activist during the Ben Ali years. In June 2014, a law was enacted to elevate the ranks of the Barakat al-Sahel officers to where they would have been had they not been stripped of their positions 23 years earlier. So as one scholar put it, for the officers of the Barakat al-Sahel affair, perhaps more so than for other Tunisians, the revolution has truly brought transitional justice. But this is in stark contrast to the case of Faisal Barakat, um, a 25, who was a 25-year-old Tunisian um, student in 1991. Um, after criticizing the Tunisian government in a televised interview, he was detained and tortured to death later that day. The police said he died in a car accident. But witnesses at the same police station provided testimonies to Amnesty International um, detailing, uh, d describing Faisal's screaming as he was tortured for hours. They said he was found, quote, slumped in a corridor, unconscious, his body contorted in the position uh, used in the roast chicken torture method, where the victim is tied to a horizontal pole with hands and feet crossed over and tied together. His face was bruised and he had cuts around the eyes. So eight years later, um, in 1999, the UN Committee Against Torture requested the exhumation of Faisal's body. 
Um, but it wasn't carried out until 14 years later in March 2013. So this is after the, the uprising. And then it wasn't until December 2016 when a Tunisian court issued 21 indictments uh, for torture in the case of Faisal Barakat. But then the case was repeatedly stalled <clears throat> and it was finally scheduled for a hearing just over a week ago in one of the specialized criminal chambers in, in Tunisia. And as it turned out, the court refused to allow the media to film the, the trial. And so uh, Faisal Barakat's lawyers um, withdrew from the hearing and uh, they've appealed against the court's decision. So the course, uh, the course of Faisal Barakat's case, which has been ongoing since his death 27 years ago, is a reminder that political leaderships um, influence the course of not only criminal, but also transitional justice in Tunisia, but also elsewhere. The questionable acquittals of many senior government officials, the controversial reconciliation laws, uh, the presidency's campaign against the Truth and Dignity Commission, and the continued arbitrary arrests, corruption, torture, policies that exacerbate social and uh, um, economic inequality, and other repressive practices all point to the impact of the emergence of the unreformed old guard that has morphed into the post-transition governments on the transitional justice process. And, and this is Tunisia, right? It's often regarded as the beacon of hope for uh, you know, the, the Arab transitions and for transitional justice um, um, following the Arab uprisings. <coughs> the second argument I make is that domestic and international actors continue to pursue inconsistent positions when it comes to accountability. Um, and this complicates, perhaps even weakens, claims that the global accountability norm is gaining ground. So, you know, classic case, while the Security Council referred the Libyan situation to the ICC in 2011, um, uh, it stopped short of doing so in Yemen. Um, instead, the Gulf Cooperation Council, the US, the UK, and the EU negotiated an immunity deal as a way to ensure Saleh would step down and to, quote, ensure a peaceful transition. Um, the Libyan and Yemeni cases are this classic example of the starkly opposing strategies pursued within the context of the peace versus justice debate. And as we all know very well, neither peace nor justice have emerged in Libya or Yemen. So this strategy by the international community um, failed miserably. It also entirely dismissed the desire of thousands of Yemenis who took to the streets to protest against uh, Saleh's immunity. Third, um, instead of addressing the past, there has been a reckoning with the transition itself, rather than with what brought about the transition to begin with. Um, a foregrounding of the exceptional circumstance of the 2011 uprisings, as though the decades of atrocities leading up to it didn't, didn't matter, it didn't happen. Um, in Egypt and Tunisia, for example, the charges in the investigations and trials that took place were limited in their scope. So most of the charges uh, were related to human rights uh, crimes that occurred during the transition period. So we're literally talking about a period of about three, three weeks or so. Um, uh, and even then, many individuals escaped prosecution. So the extent of the trials was also limited. Um, at the same time, many of the charges uh, uh, focused on corruption and financial crimes. Um, of course, those spend a longer pe uh, time period from the pre-transition pre period. And in fact, the corruption charges outnumbered the human rights charges. So I, I propose four reasons the prosecutions were and continue to be limited in this way. 
First, the prosecution of politi political leaders such as Ben Ali and, uh, and Mubarak were highly symbolic, right, in that um, these were heads of state that represented uh, you know, decades of, of oppression. And so they were effectively used as scapegoats to, first of all, appease public anger, and secondly, to give the impression that there had been a definitive break with the former regime. And secondly, the prosecution of, of, of such leaders was a way to, as one person put it, uh, a way to sacrifice a part of the regime to save the regime, a way to protect the interim and post-transition authorities from being held accountable for their role in past atrocities. And third, the limited scope of the criminal charges served to portray the mass uprising period as an exceptional period. And this, this, um, this, this was and continues to be an attempt to control which narrative about the past comes out on top. And finally, the emphasis on corruption and socioeconomic crimes was also in large part a result of decades of, of, of workers' movements and, uh, and labor unions, uh, mobilization by labor unions. So, you know, the, the daily visibility of corruption and unequal access to economic resources was and continues to be a major factor in the way people in the Arab region conceptualize injustice. Um, so my fourth argument is that a rethinking of transitional justice needs to take into account the absence of pre-transition democratic institutions and the absence of institutional reform. Um, the, the Arab region cases demonstrate the perils of pursuing prosecutions in the midst of highly contentious and fluid transitions. But, but the language and the tools of transitional justice have been used by various actors, including political and judicial institutions, either to pursue meaningful redress um, or to entrench authoritarian rule. So law, of course, emancipates as it represses, and the legal enforcement of transitional justice is no exception to this. So you'll find, on the one hand, um, civil society actors, victims, uh, journalists, um, lawyers using the law to fight the injustice of the law, whether it's through litigation activism, pushing for transitional justice laws, or pushing for prosecutions. And on the other hand, you have um, uh, governments, you have uh, the military in some cases, you have parts of the judiciary and other elite actors using law to entrench authoritarian rule, and using transitional justice laws to, to do that. Um, whether it's through you know, passing these controversial reconciliation laws, um, uh, passing repressive protest laws, and pursuing politicized trials. And then, of course, you also have the proliferation of laws as well, right? The, this obsessive enactment of law after law after law, whether it has to do with you know, amnesties, lustration, uh, immunity, and so on. Now, the, the, the use of law for these contrasting ends is, of course, nothing new. I mean, we've seen it happen in Latin America and other places. But rather than declare transitional justice in the Arab region dead or even non-existent, the research that I've been doing since 2011 in particular shows that um, uh, transitional justice processes are quite active and quite complex. Um, I wouldn't say that they're alive and well, but they are certainly alive. And they demonstrate the use of transitional justice as a battlefield for competing visions of justice in the context of resurgent authoritarianism and ongoing violent conflict. So a running thread in these arguments is, is the question of time. Have Egypt, Libya, Tunisia, and Yemen been in transition since independence? Is this why the mandate of Tunisia's Truth Commission extends to crimes committed since 1955? What are these countries transitioning from and what are they transitioning to? 
But let us leave the Arab region for a moment um, and turn to Latin America to, to further illustrate my point about uh, this question of time and justice. Uh, my journey to understand <coughs> what was happening in Egypt and Libya, Tunisia and Yemen actually started in Argentina, Brazil and Uruguay. Um, there I interviewed lawyers, human rights activists, uh, one prosecutor and, and some NGOs. So more than 30 years after the overthrow of, of their military dictatorships, the issue of transitional justice is still very much alive and, and also controversial. Argentina in particular, of course, is often regarded as a champion of transitional justice, especially as, as it has prosecuted its former leaders and aides for decades. Um, about a year ago, maybe some of you will remember that um, one of the highest profile human rights trials in Argentina saw the sentencing of 25, uh, sorry, 29 former military officials to life in prison for kidnapping, torturing, and murdering regime opponents. Um, this trial, which lasted five years, shed light on the horrific practice known as death flights, right? Um, where regime opponents were captured, tortured, drugged, loaded onto aircraft, and then pushed to their death into the ocean. Um, there, there were many memorable conversations during my trip to Latin America, but if I had to choose one that stood out and made me really think about transitional justice in the Arab region, it was my interview with Maria Adela Antokolet um, at her home in Buenos Aires. So in, in 1977, Maria's brother Daniel and his wife Liliana were kidnapped and tortured at Argentina's infamous clandestine prison, ESMA. Liliana was released, but Daniel uh, disappeared during Argentina's, um, he, he disappeared during that, that time. Maria is the, the daughter of one of the founders of the Madres de la Plaza de Mayo, a protest movement led by the mothers, sisters, and daughters of those forcibly disappeared during Argentina's brutal dictatorship. So for over 40 years now, she's been campaigning and searching for the truth about the fate um, of her brother, as well as the fate of thousands of other Argentinians. And she asked me to pause and have a look at the plaque embedded in the pavement just outside her building. Um, so when I left, I had a look and it had her brother's name on it. Um, and I thought to myself about the painful questions that run through Maria's head every day as she goes in and out of her building. You know, what happened to my brother? Where is my brother? Is he, is he alive? So then I went to visit ESMA, the clandestine prison, where over 5,000 Argentinians were tortured. Um, it's become a memorial now. And on the tour of the ESMA grounds, we were shown where prisoners were forced to lie like sardines in impossibly narrow spaces, where pregnant women were kept and forced to give birth after which their babies were taken away from them and given to families loyal to the military to raise them. And we were shown where prisoners were tortured. And I remember turning to a sound behind me and it was this woman overcome with emotion and sobbing as, as the guide explained the horrors prisoners faced. Um, thankfully, ESMA is, is the past in Argentina, but it is the present in Egypt, in Syria, in Yemen, in Libya, and in many other places. Stories like Maria's are, of course, very personal stories, and you know, transitional justice is personal. It's, it's about people who have been tortured, raped, murdered, people whose land um, and property was stolen, people who have disappeared. But unfortunately, transitional justice, I think, as it has been implemented, often loses sight of these stories of victimhood. In fact, I, I feel like it, um, it often loses sight of victims. Um, while Maria has to an extent had legal recourse and may have, felt, may have felt a sense of justice following the verdict last November, others like her in Egypt, Tunisia, Libya, Yemen, Syria, and many other places simply do not have that option. 
Um, and so this is what in large part drove much of the research and thought that went into my book. How do you pursue justice within the context of resurgent authoritarianism and ongoing conflict? Um, Argentina and other Latin American countries experienced a return to democracy, but what if there was no democracy to begin with? Can you pursue justice in the absence of a transition to liberal democratic rule? Can you pursue justice in the absence of institutional reform? How do you pursue justice through the use of politicized judicial institutions? And what if those who hold the evidence um, to build a strong court case, such as the police and security forces, are themselves the perpetrators of these crimes? Um, and I think, I think Catherine Turner usefully sums up this um, part of the problem. Transitional justice's weakness, she argues, lies in its binary oppositions. The assumption that we're moving from a state of, um, uh, of war or violence to a state of peace or law. And the false assumption that violence and law are, are mutually exclusive. So the, the Arab region transitions are marked by regimes that have reestablished themselves. The result is a highly contentious justice process that has largely contributed to the suffering rather than the healing of victims and their families. The use and abuse of transitional justice, currently and largely understood as a liberalizing process, has instead strengthened repressive, post, um, uh, repressive rule post-transition, effectively turning transitional justice and its prosecution mechanism in particular on its head. Judicial reform, institutional reform, I mean, there's no doubt that these are um, required for a meaningful or genuine reckoning with the past to take place um, in, in the field of criminal accountability. And even Argentina saw a long judicial reform process, right? I mean, the initial absence of trials in post-transition Argentina was in part attributed to uh, politically biased courts, and it took decades for judicial reform to materialize, which in turn opened up prosecutions after the initial lull. So ignoring or not paying enough attention to the socio-legal histories of Egypt, Libya, Tunisia, and Yemen will undermine um, uh, the transitional justice process itself as well as our understanding of the unfolding um, of the process. So I think that transitional justice practitioners and scholars should um, uh, confront this difficult question of what is meant by transition. As it currently stands, I think that the field of transitional justice fails to adequately account for radically varied contexts. But the literature on the importance of context is growing, and this is, of course, a very positive development in the field of transitional justice. And going back to Faisal Barakat, I mean, the case of Faisal is one of several iconic cases in Tunisia, in Egypt, in Libya, and other places. Um, and it was initiated as, as an ordinary justice case that then became a transitional justice case. And I think that this reflects the continuity of certain injustices across the transition moment or period. Um, and the tendency, perhaps, of the term transitional to constrict our ability to, to understand why uh, the, the reasons why transitional justice unfolded the way that it did in, in, in these countries. All too often, transitional justice looks back and looks forward without looking at the present. Um, is a transitional society equipped to deal with the past and the future in a way that is viewed as genuine by victims? So the, the, the approach in this book is perhaps counterintuitive in that it starts by examining pre-transition efforts to prosecute high-level government officials. 
Um, there are you know, several, several pre-transition cases, including some universal jurisdiction cases um, that were brought forward by Tunisians in France and Switzerland, eventually trickled into the post-transition period. Um, and so I think this raises important questions about time, um, continuity, and the exploitation of such iconic cases at the expense of a broader reckoning with the past. So you have a situation where victims of the past have been marginalized while new victims have been created by crimes of the transition and the post-transition period. And um, so this, this book ultimately underscores uh, the idea that justice is a process as opposed to a definitive outcome. Um, some, some argue, of course, that now is not the right time to pursue um, criminal justice, uh, you know, that you must wait for the right conditions to be in place to, to, to pursue prosecutions. But can we really look, um, you know, those who have suffered brutal torture or those who are related to those who have suffered brutal torture and other kinds of crimes and say, now is not the right time? Um, I continue to struggle with this question concerning time, but in many ways the answer has been in front of me all along. So immediately after the publication of my book, I delved into uh, the Syrian documentation movement. Um, so activists, lawyers, victims, defectors, civil society actors have been documenting violations since the start of the current war in Syria and some have also been filing court cases against alleged perpetrators, especially in Germany and Sweden. I'm sure many of you are familiar with this. So in the Syrian documentation movement you have both professional documenters and ordinary citizens uh, documenting these violations or these atrocities. And some have criticized this because they are concerned that the documentation procedures that are followed are not up to par with so-called international standards. Um, but this critique, I think, overlooks the, the power of this organic and victim-led movement. The organic nature of the, movement, of, of, of the movement that generated this material would, I imagine, enhance the legitimacy of whatever transitional justice mechanism eventually makes use of it, not just not just prosecutions. So instead of waiting for an ideal transition to emerge, whatever that transition may be, um, the waiting period consists of active efforts to pursue justice in various ways, whether it's documentation, litigation activism, or a combination of, of both as is happening um, with Syria. Now, <clears throat> a major obstacle to this is um, this, this collective, largely self-imposed amnesia um, uh, uh, at the societal level about past atrocities. Um, this amnesia that I think plagues a lot of Arab societies and which has buried any kind of meaningful uh, public dialogue about, about, about the past. So t transitional justice often and ironically overlooks ways to meaningfully address the expectations of victims. But in the face of this, documentation has become a justice mechanism in its own right, rather than merely a step towards achieving transitional justice. And of course, documentation has always been um, central to moving transitional justice processes along. But the Syrian example and others from the region, I think, show that it's a lot more than that. Um, they show that documentation is a powerful form of nonviolent um, resistance to ongoing violent conflict. It can be pursued immediately without waiting for a political transition to emerge or even for conflict to subside. And it's also a movement involving the participation of those who have um, crossed borders to flee the violence as well as 
the involvement of the more established um, diasporas, which I think makes the movement that much more robust. And this can be empowering for victims, their families, for civil society, whose expectations of transitional justice are repeatedly dashed by the counter-revolutionary um, assault that has swept the region. So the use and abuse of transitional justice by various actors in the last seven years demonstrates the importance of um, reorienting our understanding of the relationship between transitional justice and time, as well as our expectations of transitional justice. And I think this is particularly important when designing transitional justice policies um, and when evaluating their, their performance in such challenging contexts. So it seems, it, it, it seems to me that transitional justice um, has, has become more than, more than a tool to deal with the past. It's, it's become a form of resistance to renewed authoritarianism and ongoing violent conflict. The family and lawyers of Faisal Barakat, the, the young Tunisian man I've been talking about, um, know that he was tortured and left to die in the roast chicken torture method. Um, or position over 27 years ago. They've been very patient, but they've also been very persistent. And their refusal to go ahead with the trial last week because of yet another restriction imposed by, by the courts, this time the, the prohibition of the filming of the trial, underscores the continuing struggle for what should really be something quite basic to a functioning judicial system, a fair and transparent trial. The Faisal Barakat case has undergone quite a journey, right? I mean, it was initiated under the ordinary justice system um, in Tunisia in the 1990s. It then drew international attention. Um, and then it, it was transformed into a transitional justice case. And it's now a symbol of this resistance to a restrictive judicial and political process. And while Maria Adela in Argentina continues to walk past the plaque bearing her brother's name, as she walks in and out of her building every day, she might take comfort in the verdicts issued almost one year ago, 40 years since her brother's disappearance against the perpetrators who tortured, who killed, and who disappeared their opponents. But there are many Maria Adelas throughout the Arab region. Um, tens upon thousands have been forcibly disappeared for decades. And this practice continues today at an alarming pace. Their sons, daughters, mothers, fathers, brothers, sisters continue to search for the truth about the fate of their loved ones. But the criminal justice options they face um, are marred by weak, corrupt, politicized judiciaries, as well as by ongoing violent conflict and renewed authoritarian rule. I think that um, in 2018, Egypt, Libya, uh, Tunisia, Syria, Yemen are in some important ways Argentina in 1977. Um, and it remains to, to be seen how much longer this battle for justice and injustice will ensue. Thank you.